Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the historical novel Saving Home by Judy Lindquist. The history of our country kind of is taught from the point of view of the 13 original colonies and kind of expands from there. Well, Florida history came well before that. Frog legs were considered a delicacy in many fine restaurants in the 1920s and 30s, and Florida was a primary supplier. Frog legs was usually one of their items of choice and were fairly expensive at that time in comparison to other forms of seafood. While prohibition made alcohol illegal in the 1920s and 30s, that didn't stop Floridians from making moonshine whiskey. That and much more coming up on Florida Frontiers. As her family seeks refuge within St. Augustine's Castillo de San Marcos, nine-year-old Luisa wonders if she will ever see her home again in the historical novel Saving Home. Set during the English siege of St. Augustine in 1702, Saving Home is told through the eyes of Luisa and her friends, 10-year-old Diego de las Alas and a Timucuan Indian girl named Junco. Published by the Florida Historical Society Press, Saving Home was written by Judy Lindquist. Fourth grade is when many students in Florida's public schools are introduced to Florida history. As a fourth grade teacher, Judy Lindquist originally wrote Saving Home to use as a classroom resource. As a fourth grade teacher, and actually as an educator in general, a lot of us use historical fiction to teach social studies concepts. And, um, And I have always wanted to go that route. And being a fourth grade teacher teaching Florida history, there is not that much historical fiction out there set in historical Florida. Um, And being a fourth grade teacher, we take that field trip to St. Augustine. So St. Augustine history is kind of the cornerstone of Florida history. And as I was doing research myself, preparing myself to teach my students, um, I started reading about the siege of 1702. And it's a fascinating story in and of itself. And there, after I started doing research about it, I started trying to find resources to bring into the classroom to teach my students, and it was extremely limited. So that's kind of the the core of what prompted me to write Saving Home. Um, I also thought it was a fascinating story to tell from a child's point of view. Saving Home brings the 1702 English siege of St. Augustine to life through a dialogue-driven, fast-paced story. During the siege, Spanish and Native American families stayed within the walls of the Castillo de San Marcos for six weeks while St. Augustine burned down and a battle raged around them. 
In addition to offering fascinating details about this historical event, Saving Home has messages about life, family, and what is important that resonates with readers of all ages. Some of the themes um, in the story, um, obviously family, um, faith, um, places to call home and how home is not just a building and not just, you know, four walls and a roof kind of thing and how um, how being persistent, having having belief in yourself and in the people around you, how important that is to getting through challenging times like the siege of 1702. Um, and the children in the story um, all experience the siege on a very personal level. They're all impacted very personally um, in different ways and they each have to kind of overcome those challenges um, to deal with it and to move on in a positive way. When the families in Saving Home emerge from behind the walls of the Castillo de San Marcos, most find that their houses have been totally destroyed. Luisa's parents make this tragic event into an opportunity to explain to her the difference between a house and a home. Earlier in the story, though, Luisa hears the same message from her Native American friend, Junko. Judy Lindquist. I think the Native American culture as a whole probably had a, a, a stronger grasp on that whole concept of home is not just a building that you live in, that home is the earth and, you know, where we all are. And, and their culture seemed to have that as the core of part of their belief to begin with. Um, so that's why I introduced, had Junko the Indian girl introduce that idea to Luisa when they were inside the Castillo de San Marcos still going through the, the siege. Um, the the, the siege itself, the outcome was, for those who haven't yet learned about the story, um, St. Augustine was virtually destroyed when the English forces left in defeat. They burned everything. And so the people of St. Augustine, even though at the end of the siege they still had control of St. Augustine and they still had not lost their home, they had nothing. They were starting all over. They walked out of the Castillo to rubble. And I think that in itself must have been a, just an amazingly powerful point for many of these families. Um, and they had to then, of course, make a decision. You know, what are we going to do? Um, are we going to look at this positively and go forward? Or are we going to let this kind of be the final discourager for us? And, and hopefully the story ended on a positive, hopeful note. While Judy Lindquist had been using early versions of Saving Home in her classroom for years, she was inspired to seek publication of the work after attending a seminar for teachers sponsored by the Florida Humanities Council. FHC teacher seminars cover topics such as the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, and civil rights in Florida. The five-day seminar that Judy Lindquist attended was called Between Columbus and Jamestown, Spanish Colonial St. Augustine. Monica Kyle is program coordinator for the Florida Humanities Council. We started it actually about it'll be five years ago this coming summer, and we were awarded a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities under a, a grant pool they called Landmarks of American History. And they have these, they fund week-long seminars for teachers all around the United States at, at Landmarks of American History. Um, we were about one of 17 or 18 the first year, and then every year since we've had to reapply um, and have been awarded the grant every year since. We did, we started it out doing four week-long seminars each summer for teachers from around the United States. Um, so over the past four, the first three years we did it, we had four week-long sessions. The 
fourth year we did it, we had two week-long sessions. I believe the year that Judy came, we had stopped accepting the NEH funding for that seminar and had hosted it just for Florida teachers, which was really nice, actually. It was, um, you know, we had been doing the seminar for so long at that point, I don't think we realized how much more useful it would be for Florida teachers as opposed to teachers from across the United States, um, which was always great to, to have teachers from all over learning about Florida and its place in American history, but it was so much more special for Florida teachers who you know have students that really have this in their own backyard. So Judy was part of that first summer where we did just for Florida teachers. Saving Home by Judy Lindquist is actually the second book for younger readers to be inspired by the FHC teacher seminars. The other book takes a new look at Thanksgiving. Monica Kyle. The first is called America's Real First Thanksgiving by Robin Joya. Um, and she was inspired by uh, Professor Michael Gannon, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at, at U.S., who during his lecture every um, week during the seminar always talks about how there was a, a Thanksgiving in Spanish Florida before there was ever one at Plymouth Rock. Um, and that it was the, the Spanish and the Native Americans, and they had um, a, a kind of a stew with meat and um, garbanzo beans type of thing and a, and a kind of a port wine. And so every year that the teachers hear this, I mean, everybody's always, you know, amazingly inspired. Nobody can believe that they never knew that there was a Thanksgiving here before there was one in New England. And Dr. Gannon has this, you know, hilarious story that he tells about how all the people up in New England are just horrified by the knowledge that, you know, somebody is usurping their their Thanksgiving. Um, So Robin actually took that story and wrote a children's book, which is really, um, you know, a beautiful kind of picture book for smaller children that's just been a huge hit, and I think that's what, I know that's what inspired Judy, because Judy had already written that um, story, Saving Home, and she came to me during the seminar after I had shown the teachers that book, and uh, talked about how inspired she was by that, and, you know, did did I think that maybe she had something here with her book, and I said, yeah, she definitely did. Although Saving Home is targeted at younger readers, many adults find the novel to be an enjoyable and informative read. Monica Kyle is among them. Because I like the um, the age range, first of all, that it was targeted towards. I remember when I was in that kind of, you know, 10 to 14 level, just how much I loved reading. So I was really um, impressed that she chose to aim at that age group because um, it seems like, you know, you see so many children's books that are really aimed towards a lower um, you know, towards children, children, and I, I like that this was kind of more of a young adult novel because I remember I was so inspired by books at that time of my life. Um, but it, you know, it talks about real children living in this very hard time um, in Spanish colonial Florida, and it's interesting. It's kind of an adventure story. You know, there's animal in it that you know, you know, it always warms your heart. Um, and it was just a good read. You know, I mean, I breezed through it in an hour or so and was really impressed by it. Um, I just I felt it was, you know, stayed really true historically to the time, so anybody that's reading it gets a real sense of what was going on, but it's also really interesting and fun and a good adventure story, so I was just really impressed with it. Judy Lindquist created Saving Home from meticulous research. The exciting plot is almost entirely based on historical fact. She separates the fact and fiction in the novel for us. 
the this events of the siege that are told in the story basically are historically accurate. And at the back of the book is a timeline with the historically accurate events. Um, the children are fictitious. Their families are fictitious. Um, the 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 only event in the book that is historically accurate, but I took a little bit of writers kind of you know, liberties, was when um, when the English forces landed on Amelia Island, which is north of St. Augustine. It's it's closer to Jacksonville. Um, the, and that is a historically accurate event. They did land on Amelia Island. They burned the missions there. But in the story, um, when they landed on the island, I described it to the point where the children and the people of St. Augustine at night could see the flames on the island in, in historical retrospect it was probably too far for them to actually see the flames but again being historical fiction i i wanted that kind of um really emotional moment and and that so other than that the other events in the story are historically accurate and as you said there was much much research was involved and i had many people proofing it and you know and so every every effort was made to be true to the story of the siege of 1702 in addition to introducing fourth graders to Florida history, Judy Lindquist also teaches future elementary school teachers at the University of Central Florida. The courses that I cha- teach change from semester to semester, but mainly it's the children's literature, language arts, or social studies for elementary education teachers. Um, and I really, it's really enjoyable to be at that point in their career. All of those courses are applications courses. They've already done their theories, and so Basically, I'm taking the, telling them how to take those theories and actually apply them to the elementary classroom. Um, and it's really a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Judy Lindquist explains why she feels that people of all ages need to be aware of Florida history. History is nothing more than the stories of people and places. Um, it's not just dates to be memorized. And when we when we can get beyond that and, and get children to realize that history is just the stories of people, it becomes very real and important to them. And I think as, as humans, we really do need to study and to need to know the past. Um, as far as Florida, um, it's I think that it's, it's not as well known that Florida really, I mean, the history of our country kind of is taught from the point of view of the 13 original colonies and kind of expands from there. Well, Florida history came well before that. And if we're talking about the history um, of North America, of the continent, Florida has a really important place in that history. And I think it's important for us to make sure that our, our children know that. Judy Lindquist is author of the historical novel Saving Home, set during the English siege of St. Augustine. It's published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in St. Augustine in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest cultural organization in the state. 
Today, we're based at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. It's not easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves When I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that It's not easy being green It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things And people tend to pass you over Cause you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water Or stars in the sky Kermit the Frog would have found life even more difficult in Florida in the 1920s and 30s. Janie Gould explores the once thriving frog leg industry in Okeechobee. Before marshes were drained, frog legs were a big export from Okeechobee County. The Osceola Fish Company sold fish, of course, but also softshell turtles, marsh rabbits, and frogs. Judge William Hendry's father owned the business. He got into the frog business rather by accident. He had several pair of bullfrogs that he kept in the backyard. Some uh, journalist wrote an article, sort of a tongue-in-cheek article, about Hendry's frog farm. (laughs) Well, this was picked up, apparently, by some northern newspapers because it was no time at all before a a frog buyer from Chicago came down and wanted to see Hendry's frog farm. (laughs) Of course, my father explained to him he only had about two pair of frogs. (laughs) But... uh, he could furnish all that the man would desire. That's how he got into the frog business. This is about 1929, and from that time on, he was probably, if not the largest frog dealer in in, uh, South Florida, at least one of them. I wonder if people from the north had ever even eaten frogs before. Frogs were a delicacy in some restaurants, particularly in New Orleans. They were a very popular item at that time. And even in Depression years, those people that could afford to go out to the nice restaurants, uh, frog legs was usually one of their items of choice and were fairly expensive at that time in comparison to other forms of seafood. Frogs were marketed either by cutting the frog in half and selling only the hind legs, or some markets preferred them cut just behind the front legs, leaving a long back on the frog. And depending on the market, that's how my father prepared the frogs for shipping. At first, frog hunters brought the frogs in live, and we had them in barrels. Well, you can imagine this was a noisy place with frogs croaking and occasionally escaping out of a barrel and chasing frogs. Because these were large bullfrogs, and they were very plentiful. At that time, Okeechobee had a lot of pond areas that pastures hadn't been drained. The fact is, most of the pastures were open so that frog hunters could go anywhere freely and have access to these pond and marsh areas. During the Depression years, frog hunting was probably one of the main industries that sustained the economy because people that were out of work could go frog hunting at night. There was no particular equipment required of any expense. They would cut cabbage stalks off of the sable palm and whittle out a rather large fly swatter, if you will, (laughs) 
They would use those just to stun the frog. Others would use what was called a gig. They would take fish hooks and straighten the fish hooks and attach them in a circular manner around a piece of wood and attach a long bamboo pole to it. It was almost like a spear, and it would have maybe four or five barbs on the end, and they would gig the frog legs in that manner. They would retrieve them, put them in a sack, and uh, usually hunt all night long or until they had a sufficient catch. Do you remember how much your father would pay for a bushel of frog legs or whatever it was, a sack of frogs? In my recollection in the late 1930s, my father paid, I think, 15 cents a pound. And at that same time, fish only brought about three cents a pound. A lot of children would uh, frog hunt and get extra spending money because it was easy to do. Of course, there were hazards attached. All these marsh areas also had a lot of snakes. Did you ever do that? I tried it. I just didn't care for it. I did a little commercial fishing, but I didn't care for the frog hunting. During the Depression years, I imagine a lot of the frog hunters put some of the frogs on their own tables. Frogs were a delicacy in the households, but particularly the fish. Commercial fishermen would always reserve a few fish back for their dinner table. Did you eat frogs and a lot of fish? We rarely had frog legs. My mother would prepare them when company was coming, but as a household item in our diet, we had mostly fish. That was Judge William Hendry of Okeechobee. Janie Gould of WQCS in Fort Pierce prepared that report. When green is all there is to be It could make you wonder why But why wonder, why wonder I'm green and it'll do fine It's beautiful and I think it's what I want to be This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Lying is moonshine. Moonshine to harm the many men. Lying is moonshine. Moonshine to many men. From Prohibition in the 1920s until well into the 1950s, many Floridians were engaged in the illegal production and distribution of moonshine. Bill Dudley talks to some former moonshiners about a lucrative but dangerous industry once commonplace in the Sunshine State. Uh, I remember we had these old iron beds, you know, and just wooden floors. And I, my mother, I remember she pushing the bed off to one side and picking up the floorboards, and there was bottles under there. Josephine Gosselin Shafchuk still lives on the land where her family house once stood near Dade City. As a young girl, she and her four brothers and four sisters helped with the family business, making and selling moonshine whiskey. Well, we sold it right out of the little grocery store we had, you know. We used to have the pints and the half pints. We sold it that way. We used to load an old Dodge truck with dog catcher sides, and we loaded that truck up with five-gallon jugs, put a tarpaulin over it, and put all the vegetables on top of the tarpaulin. We'd drive into Tampa about 2.30 in the morning, and we'd go to the farmer's market. We'd sell off all the vegetables down to the whiskey, 
and they'd all float into some old barn in Ybor City. Through the late 1920s and early 30s, Shaftchuck's father operated a 90-gallon still hidden in a swampy area near the family homestead. But talk to any native Floridian over the age of 75, especially one from a rural background, and you're likely to hear of at least one relative or friend involved in moonshining. Kristen Congdon is director of the Cultural Heritage Alliance at the University of Central Florida. This was a hard place to make a living for many people. And so in the 20s and 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, there were a lot of families who started moonshining because it supplemented their work with cattle, other kinds of things that they did, and found out that it was very lucrative. We were just raising it. Everybody was doing it, it seemed like. And it was just a way of life for us. They come up in it. They knew about it from a very early age. And uh, it was a quick buck. And he could go to the nursery and go to work or some little old job at 35 cents an hour when he could haul liquor and make a, a dollar a jug. And he could carry off a load of liquor and $50 in one night. And a lot of people was in it, but they didn't want to be in it. But they had no skills, no way to go get a job, no way to travel. So they made whiskey. Tommy Johns remembers the 1950s when sparsely populated Baker County, just west of Jacksonville, was the moonshine capital of Florida, possibly even the southeast. I've seen under red light McClenny five or six different cars loaded, headed out, going to Thomasville, Georgia, Tallahassee, Gainesville. Man, I don't see how they drank all that whiskey in Thomasville, Georgia, and Tallahassee. There was two or three cars a night loaded going up there, and then, then uh, semis going up to North Carolina. Amherst, Georgia, Cordell. In rural North Florida, the goal was to outrun the police with large, heavy cars re-engineered from the tires up by men like George Dub Sands of McClenny. They used a Chrysler 300 engine, probably create around, I'd say, up to 600 horsepower. Oh, yeah. We could run all the way to Valdosta and never go down a, a highway from dirt roads all the way. Local law enforcement did little to stem the tide of spirits, often looking the other way or allowing neighbors to tip off the moonshiners. There was a conspiracy of silence to protect them, either because that's where they got their alcohol or because they knew their family and they knew that these were good people who needed to put food on the table for their children. We had some people that was kind of on the lookout, you know, and uh, people that was concerned about our well-being would let us know what was going on, you know. They would call us, and we'd work frantic to get everything right. You know, whiskey up in the attic and different places around town, buried. He had all the police paid off, sheriffs and all that in Dade City had all them paid off, and one of them would put his uniform on and was selling it all the way up into Georgia. Who's going to stop a cop? In 1933, Josephine Shafchuk's father narrowly escaped a prison sentence after the feds spotted his still from the air. Baker County's glory days ended in the late 50s with tougher laws and a new sheriff. Tommy Johns went off to college, and Dub Sands retired from running whiskey to open a car dealership with his brother. What had been a way of life for so many Floridians was giving way to more lawful means of employment. They they wasn't gangsters. They were just people out there trying to make a living. We never carried no firearms with us or anything. See, people get the wrong impression 
We didn't try to wreck them. They didn't try to wreck us or anything. It was just a flat race, and if if you outrun them, you you won. If you got caught, they put your butt in jail. You understand? I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org. Moonshine to harm the many men. Now that is the reason why I believe I'll make a change. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Be sure to visit our website at myfloridahistory.org and join us again next week. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.